0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, once again, I have an extra special guest, John Schlifsky. He is the chairman and CEO of Northwestern Mutual, the insurance giant that's in the top 100 on the Fortune 500 list. Uh, They have over $31 billion in annual revenues, $2 trillion plus in life insurance products, and about $200 billion in investable client assets. Uh, This really is a fascinating conversation, not just about the insurance industry, but about how the entire financial services industry has changed over time, how it's become uh, more integrated, more holistic, how the concept of, you know, the insurance salesman out hawking policies is, is so outdated. Uh, John is really super knowledgeable about a variety of things within the industry. Uh, Northwestern has been very aggressive in not only their own internal green initiatives, but their diversity initiatives. You tend to think of a company like them as a large state insurance company that might be a little behind the times. They are nothing of the sort. They seem to be fairly cutting edge relative to uh, the typical financial services firm. I was fascinated by the conversation. I, I find Schlisky to be really a, a fascinating executive. And I think you will also. So with no further ado, my interview with Northwestern Mutual's chairman and CEO, John Schlifsky. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is john Schlifsky? he is the chairman and ceo of insurance giant northwestern mutual the firm ranks number 102 on the fortune 500 they have over 31 billion dollars in annual revenue northwestern has 309 billion dollars in assets and two trillion dollars in active life insurance coverage john Schlifsky, welcome to bloomberg well thanks barry i'm glad to be here appreciate it so let's start out talking about some of your beginnings Uh, i read one of your first jobs was scraping paint off of trucks tell us about that
1: well my uh yeah my father owned a very small trucking company in milwaukee and so when i was 13 i had to start working there and uh, i i basically did all the jobs none of the professional truck drivers wanted to do including Things like cleaning bathrooms and cleaning trucks and scraping paint off of things and stuff like that. So it was, uh, I think it was my dad's way of uh, wa- making me want to go to college because I, I was, a, you know, it was, it was a lot of gritty and grimy work and uh, um, in a family business environment. So it was, it was a great experience uh, and, and it certainly taught me the value of an education, I'll tell you that.
0: So speaking of education, you go to college, you, you get an MBA, and it looks like pretty much right out of school. You started at Northwestern Mutual in 87. Was, was that your first job right out of school?
1: No, I, my first job was with MetLife, uh, doing <laughs> similar things. Uh, so I graduated from business school, went to MetLife for four years, both in Chicago and in New York. And uh and then I got recruited to go to Northwestern Mutual, which is in my hometown of Milwaukee. So it seemed like a kind of a dream come true for me. And uh so I start yeah, so then I did go to Northwestern Mutual and that was thirty four years ago. I can't believe it. Um back in nineteen eighty
0: seven, that's right. Did you always want a career in financial services? Was, was that the plan?
1: What I really wanted to
0: do was be in the investment world. I had I had, had a couple summer
1: jobs in banks and I saw their asset management uh, stuff. And um, when I was in business school at Kellogg at Northwestern, Warren Buffett was speaking in Chicago. And, you know, it was for young investment people. And, and he said, if you really wanted a great investment career, you should work for a life insurance company because they have great processes. They're typically buy and hold investors, very analytical in nature, uh, exposure to the the entire balance sheet from bonds through equities, all that kind of stuff. And so, I, I you know, I, I think that made a huge impact on me. And uh, so as I was interviewing at, at business schools, um, I became increasingly interested in the investment side of financial services. So I um, uh, looked at some investment banks, looked at uh, some money management firms on Wall Street and things like that. And I think given my experience, and I was relatively young when I got out of business school, I think the life insurance jobs were just perfect for me because it was a, a place where I could, uh, you know, build my skills and start out really at the bottom as a junior analyst. And... Uh, um, And I really loved managing money. I just, I love the the game. I love the, you know, the game in the sense of trying to figure stuff out that other people hadn't. And so I was, I think I was always attracted to that sort of analytical framework. And that's why I went to MetLife and then ultimately Northwestern Mutual.
0: Uh, So I read an interesting quote from you and I want to get your feedback on this quote. What had the biggest impact was the recession of 1973 and 74 I watched my dad be worried at that point about even meeting payroll. I saw the volatility of being a small business owner, and that drew me to want to work for a big company for security reasons. Explain the thinking there. Well,
1: uh, yeah, so as I mentioned, my dad had this small trucking company. Maybe at its peak, it had 30 employees. Uh, And I, and I, I was 14 and 15 during the recession of 73 and 74, and I didn't really understand it the way I do now, but I do remember, uh, him coming home and, you know, hearing him talk to my mom about making payroll for his employees and having to draw on his own savings account a couple of times to, to feed the, the check account at work. And I remember one week where he said he made 22 cents. Uh, you know, that was what's left over after he paid all the employees. And I, and I, it just scared me, I think. And and I just saw that, that pressure and that volatility and. Uh, Uh, and then I, as I mentioned, I had a summer, I worked in a mailroom at a bank one summer. So imagine you go from this grimy, gritty trucking company, uh, where you never know where the next paycheck's coming from to a bank where everybody's clean and showered and well dressed. And, uh, I think that had a tremendous impact on me. And then you had the security of it, which is the bank, uh, seemed to be much less impervious to the economic volatility, at least to someone working in the mailroom at the time. I'm sure they had their challenges. Uh, and so I, I just uh, I just never wanted to work for a small company, and I never wanted to, to run my own business. I always wanted to work in a big company, and I think that, that notion of security was a key element in it.
0: Huh, make, makes a lot of sense. So from MetLife, you end up at Northwestern Mutual, where you start working your way up the ladder tell us a little bit about your career path
1: well as i said i started out in what we call our private capital area so that was doing private placements of uh, so privately placed debt privately placed equity leveraged buyouts the 80s were the leveraged buyout you know glory days and northwestern mutual was a was a huge participant in it so it was a, it was a fun Experience because we were we were looking at so many different companies, so many different industries, so many different uh, kinds of capital structures, and I was learning so much. Um, so we had that growth in the company, and then I was I was growing as a as a professional. And one of the things I've always appreciated about Northwestern Mutual, and I think it's still true to this day, it was a true meritocracy. And and by that I mean that I always thought the people who got promoted, including me, obviously, uh, were were being rewarded for what we did, what we knew, how we were growing. And I never felt it was there was a club. And I never thought connections were the way to the top. I always thought it was uh, doing the right thing and being rewarded for it. So I think, you know, over my over, you know, as you're growing up in your 20s and 30s and 40s, every now and then headhunters would call. But I always wanted to stay at Northwestern Mutual really for two reasons. One, I love the culture. I love the what the company stood for. And then the second, as I mentioned, I I always felt it was a true meritocracy where you were rewarded for what you did. And I think ultimately, if you had told me in 1987 that in 2021, I'd be still here, I don't think I would have believed you. But when you start stringing together year after year of this feeling about good about the company, its culture and its mission and good about your career and your bosses and the way you're treated, um, I, I just think that growth was uh, amazing. And so uh, here I am 20, uh, whatever it is, 34 years later in 2021, uh, feeling really privileged to have been able to make most of my career at this great company.
0: Hmm. So, sounds really interesting. And and you've been CEO for, is it what, seven, eight years already?
1: 11, it's 11, 11. years. 11? If you can believe it, yeah. Wow, Hard to that, believe.
0: That's, a shocking, that's a shocking number. Yeah. So speaking of how quickly time goes by, Northwestern Mutual has a 150-year-old history. How does that affect how you manage the firm? What does that legacy mean to you? Well, I, w-
1: I would start off uh, with the notion that it's uh, both an honor and a responsibility. So it's sort of like, uh, take your favorite sports team, the Packers, the Yankees, you know, whatever team has this unbelievable uh, legacy. When, when you're running the place, you can't lose sight of not just what a great job it is, but the huge responsibility that goes along with it. And this notion that we've been around for generations, we've taken care of people for generations, and that we have to do that for years and years to come. I, I say. Uh, I always like to tell the story so we're a mutual company that means we're owned by our policy owners we're not a stock company and we don't really have an end date there's no there's no notion that at some point this company will get sold to somebody else or that, uh, there, that you know we need to find a, a different ownership structure or anything like that we We are in business uh, for past generations our current customers and generations yet to come even people who aren't even born yet uh, there's a re- uh, sense of responsibility to taking care of that. And um, I think that's one of the things I love about this job, that as a CEO, you can think in three different time directions. We obviously have to deliver, and I call them near now and far. So we have to deliver near. We have to, we have to do what's required today to deliver, uh, or excuse me, that's the now, to, to deliver value to our policy owners today. But we also have to be effective and relevant both in the near term, let's say two to four years out, And in the far, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years out, we're selling products today in which people will own them for 60, 70, 80 years. And so that that notion of working over decades, creating relevance over decades, creating economic value over decades, evolving over decades is really one of the sort of legacies that goes with running a company that's over 160 years old. And if you look at this company, we started as a life insurance company that we're, we're now number one in the, in terms of market share in the country. And you mentioned we have over $2 trillion of life insurance in force, but we've evolved. We now sell a, a variety of risk products, including disability income, annuities, long-term care, but we also are a major uh, wealth management uh, player. We have over 200. Uh, close to 200 million, uh, excuse me, billion dollars of assets under management for our wealth management clients. Uh, we're growing, uh, swiftly in that business. We're integrating insurance and investments at our, at the client level to create better outcomes. And those are all proof points, I think, around how this company has evolved and how as the leader, you feel this tremendous responsibility to steward the company for the next generation of employees policy owners, and people who sell our products, which we call our field, they all have a, a long-term stake in the in the value of this enterprise.
0: So, John, let's talk a little bit about change. You were discussing how the company has adapted over the past few decades. How have the economics of life insurance changed over time?
1: Well, the economics have uh, changed in a material way, and it's it's really... Uh, tied to what's going on in the marketplace. In the marketplace, um, the fundamentals that create value for our policy owners haven't changed. It's how well the investment portfolio performs. It's what's your mortality experience. It's how persistent are the policies. How long do the policy owners keep their policies? And then ultimately, can you manage the expenses of the business and be a low-cost provider? So those things haven't changed, and they're the core to creating value for our policy owners who happen to be our customers at the same time. But what's really uh, been, I would say the most dramatic in the last, uh, let's say 15 years or so, is the role of interest rates. Um, They obviously have a huge impact on pricing when interest rates go down, the, the cost of life insurance goes up, not necessarily the premium per se, But for permanent life insurance, a huge component of the value is the cash value that builds over time. And when uh, interest rates are low, that cash value builds at a much slower rate. And so that's what what I mean when I say it becomes more costly. So with rates coming down in the dramatic way they have really over the last uh, 15 years, that's had a a very important uh, sort of headwind on uh, the value of life insurance. And so if you think about it this way, um, you know, policies issued in, in the mid-90s had interest rates in the 8% range. Uh, and now we're in a period where interest rates are down around 3%. So that that's a huge difference in terms of the value that's created in these policies over time. The good news is, uh, from Northwestern Mutual's perspective, that we've, we really have recognized this and have stayed ahead of the curve. I remember going to Japan in the late... Um, 2000s, right around 2008, 2009, and I visited with a number of Japanese life insurance companies at the time. And they, of course, had been going through this same sort of decline in interest rates for the past couple uh, decades in Japan. And... uh, I think the the two takeaways I had there were, one, it never stops, and you have to be prepared for a very long period of low interest rates, and you have to get your financial house in order, which we've done. And the second is you have to continue to evolve. You have to continue to show value to, to your policy owners because what may have been the key value, which is higher interest rates, goes away. And so I'm really proud of the way Northwestern Mutuals navigated this uh, period. But ultimately, uh, it's low rates that have been the biggest headwind on the company. And they've had the, the single biggest impact on the economics of our industry.
0: Huh? Really interesting. You, you mentioned mortality as another factor. There are two issues I, I have to ask about. One is the impact of people living longer in general. We we've tend to see lifespans extend. But at the same time, you know, we've had over a half a million COVID-related deaths. How do those two factors play into the economics of, of the insurance business?
1: So, uh, you know, the, the increased longevity of Americans over the last century has been a huge positive uh, for the life insurance industry. And mortality continues to improve, although not at the same pace it did, let's say, in the 20s and 30s. But in general, Americans tend to be living longer, living healthier lives, and that has a huge benefit to the value of their policies, obviously. And, uh, and that's one of, the re- and one of the reasons Northwestern Mutual stands out is that our mortality experience is actually better than the, the industry average. We underwrite very well. And so all of that mortality improvement really is returned to our customers, our policy owners, in the form of dividends. Uh, We paid out over $6.2 billion in dividends in 2020, and and that's a huge proof point on the, the economic value that we create. And mortality is a huge component of it. COVID, of course, is a tragedy for this country. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's obviously, uh, many, many, many hundreds of thousands of deaths due to COVID. What we found for our, our company is that the average age of our COVID claims has been around 80, 81 years old, and the average duration of those policies is over 40 years. And so what that's telling us is that by a large, at least for Northwestern Mutual's policy owner base, uh, the COVID impact has been relatively negligible. These are uh, uh, obviously much older people who have had these policies enforced for a long period of time. And if you look at sort of the difference, but, it, you know, just in terms of death rates with COVID and who's dying versus, let's say, the Spanish flu back in the 1919-1920 area, it's, it tends to negatively impact much older people rather than much younger people. And so that's that's muted the mortality cost, let's say, at the mortality expense of COVID as it relates to our policy owner base. And so, as as we've told our board, uh, you know, we're in business to pay claims. We pay death claims because people need that. Uh, Their families need it. Their loved ones need it. And we're proud to pay out our COVID claims. But at the end of the day, uh, it's been something that hasn't been nearly as bad from a financial perspective as many people thought a year ago today.
0: So you had mentioned other forms of insurance, like disability and and long term care. I know a number of other carriers have run into some problems with that. What seems to be the difficulties with those products? Is it is it they're just harder to price, or did they simply underwrite the wrong group of people?
1: There's no doubt that some products in the insurance world are harder than, to price than others. Uh, Uh, You know, if you think about insurance in general, you've got a group of people paying premiums up front uh, and then collectively they're sharing in the risk of loss. Um, And when it comes to long term care there's a number of assumptions that were really, um, I think, mispriced from an industry perspective. I'm glad to say Northwestern Mutual didn't fall into that trap. Um, But without getting too esoteric, the single biggest uh, mistake that uh, many companies made with pricing long-term care was what's called lapse rate. And so this is the percent of the policies which lapse and which people stop paying premiums on. And many long-term care products were basically Uh, lapse-supported pricing. In other words, they overestimated how many people would pay premiums for a while and then let the product lapse before any benefits were ever paid on it. And what the industry found out is that long-term care is, in fact, a product that once people have, they don't want to give up because they know how near and dear it is to their financial security. And so, yes, the industry had some uh, rather significant Mistakes when it comes to pricing that product. I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, uh, Northwestern Mutual uh, has been sort of much more um, conservative with our pricing. We, ha- we don't do lab supported pricing in the long term care market, and as a result, uh, we've had much better experience with our products. I do think long term care is an example of a product that is, uh, um, what's the way to say it? It's, it's people need that product. It's really, really important for the Uh, let's call it the average American to think about um, how they take care of their long-term expenses post-retirement. And uh, I always use the example, people have no problem insuring their home, uh, even in retirement after the mortgage is paid, because they can't imagine losing a physical asset to a fire or something like that. And yet the odds of making a claim on long-term care are much higher than the odds of your house burning down in retirement. And yet people don't assume that that risk is something they should insure against. so uh, long-term care insurance is a nece- I think it's a necessary product. I'm proud to see the way the industry has been evolving to find new ways to deliver long-term care protection to our policy owners including northwestern mutual increasing now uh, long-term care insurance and the risks of it are being embedded in life insurance products so that you you basically have a combination of both a mortality risk insurance as well as a long-term care risk insurance and i think that's really important because at the end of the day uh, one of the biggest concerns people have is running out of money in retirement and long term care is one of those events that can completely throw your financial plan for a loop and and create un, you know unforeca- unforecasted expenses especially around things like alzheimer's memory issues and so on and so for our industry to uh, uh, begin to come out with these hybrid products uh, rather than just standalone products that can create sort of these outcomes that people need is something that I think the entire industry should be, be very proud of. The other factor about these combo products that's interesting is, it's, it's, they're less likely to be mispriced the way standalone products are because the, the, the combination of your premiums over long term with the accumulation of uh, cash values in a traditional permanent policy uh, more than offsets some of the risk that goes with long term care. And so uh, I think you're going to see long term care insurance continue to be at the forefront of what people need for financial security and uh, but just not in a standalone chassis, so to speak.
0: You mentioned we're underinsured when it comes to products like long term care and what else are we as a nation uh, underinsured against? What risks are out there?
1: I I would say that most Americans and I'm generalizing, but I, I, you know, I think this is generally true. Are, are underinsured when it comes to both, uh, in, in addition to long-term care, they're underinsured when it comes to both life insurance and to disability insurance. Um, and uh, we find that when our reps sit down with clients and go through a rigorous planning process, especially people who have loved ones that they need to take care of, uh, the the notion Uh, they often have a notion that I've got a group uh, DI policy or group life insurance policy, and that takes care of me. And yet when they see what could happen, if they would become disabled, especially in their 20s or 30s or 40s with, you know, 20 or 30 years of earnings uh, potential out the door, or worse, a death, um, they they find they're very much underinsured. You know, the problem we have as a as a uh, industry, is that everybody needs what we have, but nobody understands how much they need. And it's it's a it, it is typically all three of the products we're talking about: life insurance, disability, income, and long term care are products that are bought are not bought but sold. And by that I mean people don't wake up in the morning, for the most part. Try to figure out how much of any of those they need and go out and buy it the way you'd get up and say, I want to buy a car. I want to buy a refrigerator. I want to buy a vacation for my family. And so – It is important that financial advisors understand these products, that they can show the value of them to their clients. And typically when that's done, especially not in a product sale kind of way, but as part of a comprehensive plan, we're we're always pleased to see that people, uh, for the most part, do want to buy more uh, because most people do want to take care of their loved ones and plan for these unexpected events. And this is why, as I mentioned earlier, this notion of integrating insurance and investments together is a is a we think a much better way to create outcomes for our clients that are valuable rather than just engaging in sort of one off
0: product sales. So let's talk a little bit about what makes life insurance somewhat unique in the world of financial services. It seems to be the only one that hasn't been disrupted by technology uh, as so many other industries, especially finance, has been. Why is that?
1: Well, I think there's a short answer and a long answer. The the, the main reason sort of in the short run why life insurance, you haven't seen the disruption in life insurance that you've seen in other financial services companies, I think is because it's a very capital intensive business. And so uh, for companies you know, either startup, fintech startups, or even established players like Amazon or whatever to get into it. it's it's a very capital intensive business. It requires a ton of money from a capital perspective. and because rates are low right now, the return on that capital is much uh, I think less attractive to many, Disruptors, let's call it that, than maybe other places they could go right now. So that's the short answer. Uh, I don't think that's um, a reason not to be worried about disruption. And and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I I think there's um, a lot of disruption coming our way. But I think in the long run, uh, we really have been positively uh, changed by technology. And I think COVID has accelerated uh, that change in a huge way. And I'd like to say, Uh, We're not in 2021 anymore, we're in 2030, and and that's sort of a glib way of talking about how the acceleration in our industry because of COVID has really taken a decade of change and compacted it into one year. Uh, Where you see the, the most disruption in the short run around our industry is around the client experience as it relates to purchasing our product. Companies are simplifying the process of becoming an insurer in terms of by, in the way you buy insurance. They're, they're uh, simplifying the application process. They're simplifying the underwriting process. They're doing it all sort of digitally with, with no human interaction. And they're basically making it easier and easier for clients to, uh, who see the value of a product to buy the product. And so that's where you're seeing the disruption in the short run and, and on the same side, on the wealth management side, you're seeing these robo-advisors who are trying to sort of simplify uh, many of the core principles of investing, diversification, dollar cost averaging, tax planning, all those kind of things. And ultimately, uh, so I, I would argue that we are seeing disruption creep in our industry, both on the risk side, the insurance side, as well as on the wealth management side. Uh, and by the way, I think that's a good thing for our industry. It's taking longer because, as I said, it's a capital intensive business. But but there's nothing about life insurance that would make me think that we're somehow um, uh immune from the kind of disruption we've seen in other parts of the financial services industry. And so uh, the companies that are going to survive are the companies that are leaning into this disruption, that are uh, experimenting around the customer experience, um, and so on. Ultimately, though, life insurance is a product that is really Tied to two things uh, foregoing of uh, money now and pooling those risks to protect everyone over time. That, 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 that core essence of the product is not going away. That stands the test of time. It's the only way you can really protect yourselves against yourself as an individual against catastrophic losses, and by that I mean risk pooling. And so in the long run, uh, I see the disruption in our industry more around the customer experience and the way customers, uh, way companies engage with customers and less around sort of the basic mechanics of the product, which is, as I mentioned, risk pooling, mortality expenses, and persistency.
0: So, so let's talk a little bit about those... Um employees given the circumstances and and how everybody has been working from home and remote how challenging has it been to find and train new advisors what what's it like recruiting under a lockdown uh well it's
1: been a lot harder i will say that um at the end of the day uh, I think though the fact that we were prepared for this pandemic has, uh, has helped us be successful. Um, we didn't see the pandemic coming, don't get me wrong, but we, we were well on our way to creating a digital experience, both for our customers and for the people who sell our product, our advisors. And so when we went to a uh, quarantine situation and then obviously the lockdown, uh, we were uh, able not only to uh, service our customers and sell our products to our customers solely through digital channels. But we're also able to recruit people. In fact, we had a record year of recruiting in 2020. Over 3,100 new people joined us as advisors. Um, and what I think is really noticeable about those recruiting about that recruiting class, it's more diverse than ever. More women, more people of color, and it really represents, I think a continuation around this notion that this is a great noble profession. At the end of the day, people who work for Northwestern Mutual and others in our industry are really helping people become financially secure. We know that the average American doesn't know where they're going from a financial perspective. They don't know how to get there. They, leave, they, have, un, they have cluttered sort of centeredless financial lives, and they ultimately need someone to bring that all together. And so this notion of being able to attract exceptional talent to this business uh, is not as hard as I thought it was going to be in a virtual world because of two things. This notion that we have the digital tools and because there's demand for what we do. We are not recruiting people to a dying industry. We are recruiting we are recruiting people to an industry that really has a really bright future because of this notion that most Americans have to f- provide their financial security to themselves. Think about it. My father's generation had a pension plan, the equity value in his house and Social Security. And that's really all he needed in retirement to be financially secure. But it's much more complicated today. And, and people are on their own. They're not getting sort of those corporate uh, defined benefit plans of, you know, from the days of old. And so this, there is strong demand for what we do. And I think when you add all that up, Uh, It creates an ability for us to recruit into it. And then you add to this notion what we call the abundance mentality, which is that people uh, support each other in our system. They help each other. Uh, our veteran advisors work with young advisors. They mentor them. They coach them. They do joint work with them. And all of that, I think, has put together for us a very robust year in terms of growth, even in the midst of this notion that it's not a face to face company anymore. So we're, we're a growing company. We grow, uh, in single digits every year. We're never going to be a double digit growth company given our size and our, our history. But the fact that we could continue to grow in, in, such a strong way in 2020, I think, is a proof point on the notion that there is a demand for what we do.
0: Huh, really, really interesting. You mentioned it was a record year of recruitment and you were successful in recruiting women and people of color. Lots of firms in finance have found that to be very challenging. What is Northwestern Mutual doing to make uh, their recruiting drive so successful when it comes to increasing diversity?
1: Well, I I think it's uh we're we're on about a 8 to 10 year journey in this um regard and and by that I mean we started about 8 to 10 years ago. And and we really decided at the time that it wasn't just going to be a one kind of year and done program. And and so the first let's say 5 years or so all we focused on was the culture in our offices. We knew that we had a male dominated white male dominated workplace culture not that there's anything wrong with that but it wasn't as inclusive as it should be and we needed to change the culture of those offices so that women and people of color felt just as comfortable in them as as a you know a 25 year old white guy and so that was the beginning of this journey which is let's look at those aspects of our culture that needed to change so that it became more inclusive more welcoming you know my favorite example is one of the one of our uh, network office leaders used to have a contest for for new employees, and if you won the contest, you got a tuxedo. Well, the problem is women don't want a tuxedo, right? So that was never an incentive for them. It's a little point, but it shows you all the nuances that we had to do around culture to create this welcoming environment for anybody who wants to, to be in it. Then we spent the next five or six years really focusing on this notion of of Meeting people where they are, and so you don't, you don 't recruit the same way necessarily for a white person at a big ten university as you might uh, a person of color at a historically black college or a woman who might be a career changer or all those kind of things, and so we really focused on. Meeting people where they were, recruiting people who were in environments uh, that um, that they didn't like, that they could see we had a better one. But ultimately, I think what happens, and I think this is uh, this may sound a little bit like motherhood and apple pie, but I think it's true. At the core of what we do is we help. People become more financially secure. That is our mission. And that is an attractive proposition, regardless of your race or your gender or anything like that. And so ultimately, the more we can demonstrate to people that there's a home for you, and that people want what you do, I think it's really, um, it, it's been one of the hallmarks of why we've been so successful from a diversity perspective in recruiting. It's because this is not a, it is not a white male only mission. It's a mission that anybody uh, can can look at. And if you look at, let's say, Black America, that is traditionally Underserved when it comes to financial security, there's a huge opportunity for other African American and Blacks to come into this career and and make inroads into that um, sort of let's say neglected part of our economy. And so I think it's really a it's a it is an abundance mentality, and it's one in which we've started to make some notable successes. We're far from perfect on this. The journey is nowhere close to being over. But I really feel like we've started uh, down the right path and we've got some proof points that it's working right now.
0: So that's really interesting. How does that apply to the C-suite and senior executives? A lot of big firms have been successful in recruiting people to the upper echelons of, of the organization, but they've been less successful in retaining that talent.
1: Yeah, uh, we're very proud of our record there. I would start with our board. My board, so we're a Fortune 100 company, and only 40% of our board is white male. That means 60% of our board is diverse, either in terms of gender, uh, ethnicity, race, or or some combination of the three. And so we, we start, uh, we walk the talk right from the beginning, right at the top of our organization. The other thing I would say is that we tend to be a company that likes to develop talent internally. Um, now, we have some senior people who we've recruited from the outside world, but by and large, uh, we think the way to create a more diverse and inclusive company is not just from recruiting uh, people to it, but from growing homegrown talent. All of my senior team, we all have a personal goal that uh, that we hold ourselves accountable to. It affects our annual incentive plan payouts and our long-term incentive plan payouts, and it's around diversity. Uh, we, ha- we have to be moving people up in this organization. We want to see more people of color at management levels and up. Uh, we hold ourselves accountable for that. Every um, open job, when we look at a slate of people, has to have at least one diverse candidate on it when we're considering uh, filling those jobs. Uh, we want to promote from within. The same thing is true if we uh, recruit from the outside for a job. That slate has to have at least one person and hopefully more that are represent diverse candidates. So we walk the talk from the very beginning from a recruiting and promotion perspective. And then we have fairly elaborate, uh, what I would call support mechanisms. By the way, they're not perfect yet. They're getting better, but so that uh, people of color and women in our organization feel they have the same mentorship that maybe I had as a white male back in the 80s. And so I think, uh, and as, as we've talked about on this podcast, I've been here for 34 years. And when I look at our, our level, our management ranks, and I look at uh, the women and the people of color in it. You know, I'm very proud to say a, a disproportionate share of that is homegrown talent. And uh, and I'm hoping they see the same opportunities I did, the same mission that I have, the same mission that we have going forward. Uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, I, I do think we can we can hold on to that talent. But I will say the other thing is that when someone recruits away. Uh, one of our black employees or, or a, a, let's say a woman, a senior woman, I take great pride in that because what it says to me is that we're developing talent that other people value and are hiring away from us. And just like uh, we lose white males to the recruiting process sometime when we lose people of color and women, I view that as a proof point that we are growing talent that other people value. So I think that's, that's just this whole ecosystem is from a diversity perspective is you, it's not just one thing. It has to permeate your entire culture. It has to permeate your entire way of doing things. And as that happens, the roots uh, take place. There's roots everywhere and you're not really
0: dependent on one or two people staying in order to hit some sort of metric. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the financial services world. One of the big themes has been the move away from the traditional wirehouses and towards more independent channels how has that impacted your investment business uh, if at all you know i wouldn't i would say we've
1: probably had a handful of our career advisors go to independent channels and the 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 fact of the matter is is if a career advisor leaves northwestern mutual it's al- it's almost inevitable that they go the independent route uh, but ultimately, our retention rate right now is about, I think, around 96, 97 percent, which means the vast majority of our veteran advisors are staying with Northwestern Mutual year after year. I think I think there's there's two things that we're doing. To create sort of that stickiness, because we never, you know, you never want to compete on uh, anything that's a commodity. And so, from our perspective, uh, th- th- I think our our sort of value proposition to our uh, our veteran advisors is what's keeping them there. And it all starts with sort of our unri- what we call our unrivaled holistic approach to clients. So it's the it's sort of the merger of a trusted advisor a uh, robust planning process with proprietary planning software, the integration of insurance and investments at the client level, which is somewhat unique in our industry, all backed up by a rich digital platform and omni-channel service. So those five things do set us apart from most of the independent channels. They can't bring all of that sort of skill to bear, um, you know, t- to, to a client. The second thing we have is obviously we have – arguably the best products in the industry when it comes to our insurance products. Our, our long-term value in our permanent life insurance product is second to none. We're a low-cost producer in the industry. So you, you combine those two things, and we, we think that there's, there's a home for advisors that creates something for them that they can't get anywhere else. And that's ultimately how we compete in the marketplace. And uh, it's this creating a proprietary system, if you will, that ultimately works with clients, and we think we can demonstrate better outcomes over the long term with our clients, better outcomes from an investment perspective and better outcomes from a risk perspective, and certainly when you integrate them, uh, better outcomes. And so I think at the, at the end of the day, that's what's causing this strong retention in our, in our um, career advisors is because the independent channel can't offer everything that we do.
0: So life insurance salespeople have gotten a bad rap, um, in popular culture. Is that, is that deserved or unfair? And, and what do you do to try and reduce that?
1: I think it's totally unfair. I think it, I think the bad rap is because nobody wants to buy life insurance, right? It's, it's the ultimate self-sacrifice. It's giving up money today. Uh, you know, as a policy owner that I'll never see, it'll go to my loved one someday, when I die, hopefully many, 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 many years from now. But ultimately, there's life insurance is a self-sacrificing instrument that nobody really wants to deal with. And, and you layer on that, nobody wants to talk about their own mortality. And so I think that's why the rap is unfair. I don't think it's because of the product itself. Whether you're talking about Northwestern Mutual or almost any of our competitors, the persistency in their product lines is substantial. People keep life insurance for a very, very, very long time. And the reason they do, it's because it has a positive impact on their lives, whether it's at Northwestern Mutual or at any of the other major carriers, those products that we're selling ultimately have value that people see decades from now. And so I think, and, and by the way, I don't think you can dre- be truly financially secure without life insurance. It, it has um, it benefits you throughout your life cycle as a young adult when you're taking care of uh, your family, as you near retirement in terms of the optionality it gives you, and then ultimately at the end of your life with a legacy either for charity or for your loved ones. And so this... So I think it is a bad rap, but I think it's it's one that the industry's always dealt with. And we're proud to talk about it because we know that when clients buy our products, they keep them. And I think that's a much better proof point than sort of this rap about life insurance salesmen that that continues to go around and around
0: and around. Hmm, Interesting. So so you mentioned um, managing risk over the long long haul. You're in the business as CEO of managing risks for the company. What keeps you up at night?
1: Well, um, I, you know, I think the biggest thing that keeps me up at night is some of the stuff from the external environment. If, if you look at our business model per se, uh, obviously, we're still in the midst of a transformation. So we've got to execute well. But the nuts and bolts of our operation do not uh, make me nervous. In fact, you know one of the things we like to talk about is last February, uh, when when COVID was on the horizon and everybody was freaking out, we were very, very calm about it because we had done all the scenario planning uh, t- for both a pandemic and a stock market crash with low interest rates well in advance of last February and March. It's not, by the way, it's not because we knew that was coming this this past year. It's because that's what we do to make sure that we're always in operations for decades to come. And so I don't really lose sleep over the nuts and bolts of our operation. Where, where I get nervous is about um, – a lot of the things going on uh, from a federal government perspective, I think we're in the midst of one of the biggest experiments we've ever seen in terms of government spending uh, and mon- modern monetary theory. Uh, I don't think we actually know how this experiment's going to end, and I think that's something that uh, causes me to get uh, paused and to be all you know. Another reason why uh, we, we value financial strength so much. By the way, we're a triple A company, one of only two triple A companies in America that has a stable outlook, and that financial strength is uh, is is what gives me uh, comfort in in this sort of thing. The other thing I would say that causes me to lose sleep a little bit, is this notion of uh, operating in a virtual world. Northwestern Mutual's culture, and I hope you've heard this as I've talked, and our mission is, is, is steeped in all of our employees. And yet we've hired thousands of people in 2020 who have never uh, set, spent a day in the office seeing that culture firsthand. And so this virtual world that we're in, I think, has... Uh, eaten away a little bit at that cultural piggy bank that we have. And I can't wait to get uh, back everybody back on campus and back in the offices and back to work so that we can rebuild that culture over time. I'm a little bit worried about that uh, right now. And that's one of the things that we're we're losing a little bit of sleep over. But fortunately, I think with the vaccinations and everything, I think we're closer and closer to the end of this. And then ultimately, I think low rates are, uh you know, continue to be, uh uh, problem for us. We, you know, we we uh, we're, we're built to last. It's not going to affect our company long term. But persistent low rates are very is is a very sort of slow pressure on life insurance companies, and so we have to be. Uber vigilant about expenses. We have to be uber vigilant about where we place our bets. We have to be uber vigilant about execution because we don't have a margin of error when rates are so low uh, to make mistakes and waste money or or go down the wrong thing. So, you know, those are the things that keep me up at night. And then of course the government. You never know uh, where. Regulations going to go, where corporate taxes are going to go. Those are wild cards that we can't control. We're we're lucky in that our industry is generally a bipartisan issue. We work with both sides of the aisle. And so when there's a new administration, we've got to build new relationships with the administration. But generally speaking, uh, our relationships in uh, Congress and both in the House and the Senate are strong. But you never know what's going to happen there. And that's a wild card, I think, that almost any business has to uh, worry about. So generally speaking, I feel good about where we are. I'm not losing sleep at night. Being the strongest company in the industry helps. But you've, you've just got to be uber vigilant about all these things that are going on because you just can't make mistakes when rates are as low as they are.
0: What about social unrest as a risk factor during last summer, during the Black Lives Matter protests you were pretty vocal on social media. Tell us what motivated your uh, voice and and how it was received when, within the company and within the industry.
1: Yeah, so I, I was particularly uh, moved this summer by some of that. And the reason I was moved is, uh, as I said, we're very proud of our record around diversity and inclusion. But after the George Floyd killing and some of the social unrest that followed, I made a point to call about 20 or 25 Of our uh, black and African American leaders throughout our company, both in our home office in Milwaukee, but also in many of our uh, network offices, and I think the, the the biggest sort of impact I had was this notion of hope being constantly deferred, and it's it's this notion, and not just at Northwestern Mutual, but from a societal perspective, and it's so this notion of as a black professional in this country, you hope things are better. You hope you're getting to a point of full equality and things like that. And yet those those hopes get deferred because of some of what we what we saw. And so those conversations combined with what we saw going on around the country really had an impact on me in a, in a way that I honestly didn't think that they would. And so I knew that there was a lot of work to do. What, what I'm proud of in terms of the way Northwestern Mutual approached it is that we didn't just issue press releases. And we didn't just donate money to this cause or that cause. Those are easy things. I'm not saying they're bad things, but they're easy. But what I'm really proud of is the hard work that we did. So we, fir- we formed a task force that I chair. Uh, we call it Sustained Action for Racial Equality. And, and the, I think the two key words in that are sustained action. We decided not to just do something that sort of met the summer um, unrest Head on, But something that we could be proud of 5, 10, 15 years from now. And we have a strategic roadmap. We're investing in our communities. We're investing in our culture. We're investing in financial literacy for African-Americans and blacks. And we're investing in the professional development of uh, uh, blacks and African-Americans, not just at our company, but in our communities. And I think that kind of work is is what I'm proud of because ultimately, um, and I, I tell this story you know in sort of a a fast way, but you can approach diversity and inclusion with your left brain or your right brain. If you're, let's say, your left brain's the analytical side, America is becoming more diverse. Okay, the notion that you can be a thriving, relevant company just catering to white Americans is crazy. From a just a Purely objective perspective. So, regardless of your feelings on this, there's a strong business case to be made uh, to, for diversity and inclusion. But from the right, bit, the right side of your brain, the more empathetic and emotional side, as I say, it's the right thing to do. We have a mission to make people more financially secure. That mission doesn't include labels like white or black or Hispanic or male or female. And so, we we this this notion of Doing the right thing for people who feel like their hope has been deferred too long fits right into the mission of this company, and there's no way we can't be just as good as that at that, as we are as it comes to wealth management or risk products. And so, uh, this is a skill that we're going to build. It's a skill that Northwestern Mutual is going to be world class at, and it's something that I'm proud that started. It's too bad it had to start because of uh, a killing and social unrest, but maybe that's one of the, the bright spots in this. That ultimately, it's going to lead to something that's much bigger and better than anything that was going on before. Hmm,
0: Really, really interesting. Um, A couple of years ago, you guys built a brand new headquarters. Gee, it's about five years ago. Um, I know there was uh, an element of sustainability in that new um, HQ. Tell us about Northwestern Mutual's sustainability efforts.
1: Well, uh, look, we
0: you can't be 160
1: plus years old and not care about the environment okay i mean it's it's this we, we want to be around for another 160 years and our sort of ecological sensitivities predate climate change and predate all the the current things that are going on because we ultimately want to conserve things. And we want to conserve things because that's what great companies do. And we don't want to be seen as wasting any resource, especially natural resources. So the building is a proof point around, I think, two things. One is the ability to create a building that can be green, that can can create a wonderful work environment, but at the same time be at the forefront of all the Efforts around energy conservation um, and so on, and that and this building is, and I can get into details around the windows and the cooling and all that stuff. But ultimately, it is a very beautiful, sustainable uh, structure uh, that has a great work environment as as part of it. But the other thing that's interesting, and this isn't right to your question, but it ties into your previous question, is when we built that building, we committed to the city that we would have uh, a large portion of the work done by minority contractors. And that's another form of sustainability that doesn't necessarily tie right to the um to our climate or our, or our ecological uh, resources. But by using minority contractors on a, you know, a half billion dollar building, we were able to create sustainability for them. They were, they were building skills, they were building financial resources, they were building a resume, a pedigree around this kind of really important work. And so I think the sustainability of that building isn't just from an, uh, from an ecological perspective, but also from what we did as it relates to minority contractors and their ability now to go forward. And as you've seen other construction in Milwaukee develop, our new Pfizer form where the Bucks play, other major office buildings, those uh, construction projects, are now learning from what we did and employing the same both uh, sustainability issues and the same minority contractor issues. And it's just, you can see the ripple effects of that. And it's it's why I'm very, very proud of that building. Now, our employees will tell you they love it because it's great work environment. But I'm proud of it, not just because of that, but because of sort of the um, the catalyst it became for all the things that we're talking about today.
0: So the last big question I have is, what are the looming large opportunities that you see when you look out 10 or 20 years for both Northwestern Mutual and the financial services industry?
1: Well, I I think the I think this is a growth industry. It's just it's just amazing. I you know, to repeat what I said, most people have fractured centerless lives from a financial perspective. They have too many things they don't know how to pull it together. They're on their own. They're pioneers in the sense that there's no uh, way you know, agreed upon way to do it. They don't know where they're going financially. They don't know how to get there. They need someone to help them. Uh, and and it's it's unbelievable the demand that's out there now. It's latent demand, and by that I mean people don't necessarily know exactly how to get what they want. You know, Henry Ford had that famous. Uh, saying if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses because they didn 't see the the view the value of a car, and I think our industry faces that a little bit. People want financial security they want to make sense of their financial life they want someone to pull it all together for them and make sense of it, but they don 't necessarily see the way to do that is through a trusted advisor planning and the integration of risk and investment so that 's our job. our job is to show people the way to get to financial security. But but people are underinsured, people don't know how to save for retirement. People don't know how to take care of themselves financially. And uh, it that that is the financial literacy in this country is, I would say, below average for where it should and could be. And so I think the uh, opportunity for our company and for others like us is is absolutely um, unbounded. I mean, I, I really believe we're a growth industry. Now, we're going to grow at single digits, as I said. We're not going to be the 20% year-over-year thing because this is hard work. You've got to engage clients one at a time. You've got to meet with them and do the planning, the rigorous planning that they need, and show them the way forward. But as I see more and more companies shift away from sort of this product-oriented sell, where I just wanna sell a product and move on, to forming these lifetime relationships with clients and get them to have the outcomes they want, not the products they want, but the outcomes they want, I think our industry is gonna continue to shine. And uh, so I I am actually quite optimistic about uh, our future. I'm I'm 62 years old. We have a mandatory retirement uh, policy here at 65, so I've got three years left with this company. And it, it, I, I feel melancholy about that because I think our brightest days are ahead of us. I just think there's so much opportunity in this country to help people become more financially secure. And it's it's very exciting. And then when you overlay how we're using technology to improve the customer experience, to make it more, to make it frictionless, more seamless, better for our clients, you um, I think I think this is is a is a bright future and so as this company does both perform and transform at the same time I think we are just having the, one of the brightest futures that we've ever had as a company and I'm really proud that we can deliver performance in the here and now but at the same time build out this customer experience platform that's going to ensure relevance for years and years and years to come. Mm.
0: So, so here's an unanticipated question and a little bit of a curveball. Uh, I didn't realize Northwestern Mutual had a mandatory 65-year retirement age. Have you even begun thinking about what you're going to do in retirement? Or maybe that's the wrong word, post-Northwestern Mutual.
1: Well, uh, I haven't really started thinking about it, to be honest with you. I, I've still got a lot to do here, and uh, I'm really excited about what I want to do, and it's a full-time job. Um, you know, in, in my heart, uh, I think I'd like to teach after uh, Northwestern Mutual, Um But I haven't put much thought into it beyond that. But some sort of uh, graduate business school environment where I could talk about all that I've learned and share it with people would be really fulfilling. And I think I get much more sort of joy out of that than a than a second gig somewhere in corporate America, anything like that. So, uh, uh, but as I said, I've got uh, plenty of time. I mean, Joe Biden and I are going to end our. Terms at about the same time. I'm sure he's not thinking about retirement, and neither am I. I've got a lot to do here. We've got a great team, and, and I really want to focus on delivering in the here and now.
0: Great answer. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, starting with, what are you streaming these days? Tell us what's keeping you entertained uh, during this work from home era, either Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever podcast or audio you might be listening to. What's keeping you uh, busy these days?
1: Well, I would say uh, that from a streaming perspective, except for The Crown, uh, my wife and I don't do much of that stuff. I, I When I am uh, winding down... Uh, i'm much more about reading books than i am about streaming but i will say we got sort of addicted to the the series the crown and uh love it my mother's english i went to english i went to england every summer to visit my grandmother uh so i'm a little bit of an anglophile and that's that series really resonated with me but to be honest with you i'm much more interested in in reading books when i have some free time i think that quiet really appeals to me and so uh um, uh, that's about, that's about it from a streaming perspective.
0: Well, we'll get to books in a moment. Let's talk about, uh, your mentors who helped to shape your career. Um,
1: I've been, uh, I've been blessed with, um, a lot of mentors. You know, I think that probably, um, there's two, I, rather than name names, I would say two things really uh, I value in terms of the mentorship that I got uh, uh, as a, as my career was developing. The first thing is I mentioned early on uh, that Northwestern Mutual does a lot of leverage buyouts. And... Um, and we continue to be very active in that part of the capital markets as a company. But back when I was making those investments, the opportunity to either sit on a board that we for, of a company that we were an owner of or at least be part of a board meeting uh, when I was in a more junior role and see all those CEOs in action and how they ran companies. And it wasn't just financial services. It was aluminum die casting and retail products and consumer products and things like that. That ability to see uh, different industries confront similar problems, I think, was was really helpful. Um, And then, um, you know, my board—I've been, you know, a CEO for now, going on eleven years. Before that, I was very involved with our board. And what I would say is that um, our board, my board, has been unbelievable in mentoring me. I can't tell you how many times when I was a junior. Uh, executive making presentations to our board where a board member would take me aside after a board dinner and sit down with me for 15 or 20 or 30 minutes and tell me what I did right and tell me what I did wrong and tell me where my style got out of, out of hand and things like that. And I I, I think uh, a lot of times people uh, sort of say their board's been valuable, <clears throat> but I really mean it. The mentorship that I've gotten and sort of the, the advice that I've gotten, not necessarily about strategic goals, but more around style and relating to people and engaging with people. I think those, those two things have really had the biggest impact on my sort of development as an executive, and it's stuff that I'm very appreciative of.
0: Huh, Really, really interesting. You, you mentioned books. Let's talk about some of your favorites. What, what are you reading right now, and, and what are some of your all-time uh, most beloved books? Uh, well, I am a
1: big, uh, fan of history books. So, you know, early in my career, you, you know, people would give me books like good to great and stuff like that. And I've read them and I think they're good. Uh, and I'm not complaining about them. but I found that I learned much more from reading about actual history and how people dealt with it. And I, and I tend to, uh, you know, move from, uh, American history, the European history, uh, and and I you know I just have a huge interest in both of those. Right now, I'm reading this really. Someone recommended this book. It's called uh, Oliver Wiswell. and it's I, I can't. I think it was published in 1947. It's 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 the one exception to my rule because it's a fiction book, but it's historical fiction about the Revolutionary War. Told from the perspective of loyalists, so people fighting against the colonists and the militia and george washington and it's, and it 's really interesting um to to see it from that point of view, but I just finished that book and, I'm, and uh, my wife and I just celebrated our uh, uh, wedding anniversary today as a matter of fact, and she gave me this book on Sunday. she jumped the gun a little bit and it 's called lincoln 's mentors and it 's by a guy named michael gerhardt and it's it 's really about all the people in lincoln 's life. That influenced his policy, and I, I'm on about I don't page 100. I just started it, but it's it's really fascinating to see how um, the early people in his career, Henry Clay, is is the one I'm reading about now, and how influential. They were in his sort of development as a leader, um, and so um, I'd recommend both those books—the ones out of print—but uh, uh, this this book by Michael Gerhardt is, I think, is relatively new, and it's it's so far so good. So that's what I'm reading right now.
0: Huh. Very interesting. What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either insurance or finance or both?
1: Um. The the advice I got when I was 22 is advice I followed at work for me. And so I always like to share it with other people. And and one of my neighbors, when I was uh, just getting out of college, said the secret. And he worked at a, a bank, a fairly senior guy at a local bank in Milwaukee. And he said, if you work harder than anyone else between the ages of 25 and 35 and never stop developing additional skills, so you're always learning you'll set yourself up for a great career. And I've tried to follow that. I, obviously, I'm well beyond 35 now, but in my 20s and 30s, when you're young and you have bondless energy, <clears throat> there's no reason not to work harder than everybody else. And And I did that. And I think that was the foundation for the career. And then as, as we talked about, just reading books or finding other ways to constantly be learning. Think about how Northwestern Mutual in 34 years my career there has changed it's dramatic how we've evolved and changed and transformed ourselves and you couldn't do that if you weren't reading and learning and observing and being curious and so i think i think those two things working hard and never stop being curious never stop looking at other industries or people for, for skill sets or ideas, I think is really ultimately uh, a great way to build a career, regardless of whether it's in insurance and finance or probably anywhere else.
0: Huh? Quite interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of insurance and corporate leadership that you wish you knew when you began your career 34 or so years ago?
1: When I started at Northwestern Mutual, as I mentioned, I worked in the investment side. I could have cared less about life insurance. I just loved being a portfolio manager, investing in companies, watching them grow, et cetera, et cetera. I wish I'd known what a great industry this is back then. And maybe this sounds a little self-serving, but our industry is vibrant, it's growing, it's full of innovation, and I think sometimes... Uh, people aren't attracted to it because they think it's kind of boring and old and stodgy. And it's really not that. And I wish I'd known more about that. I I probably would have paid more attention to things going on around me rather than just hunkering down and doing the investment stuff. And, uh, um, from a leadership perspective, um, you know, I'm still evolving there, but ultimately what I've really learned about leadership that I didn't know back then is that it you, you have to have uh, both a keen um, intellect and strategic mind, but you also have to have high emotional IQ, emotional quotient. And I, and I really, when I was younger, I thought, wow, if I have a good idea and I explain it, uh, everyone will just buy into it and start working there. And I totally under appreciated how much, how important it is. To engage with people, not just on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level, so that there's, so that they know that you care about them. They know that the reason you have this idea is not for selfish reasons, but it's for the good of the organization. They, they believe that what you're doing isn't just for personal aggrandizement for the, but for the for the good of the organization. I don't think I really appreciated that 15 or 20 years ago. Maybe even 10 years ago, I didn't appreciate it. But as I, you know, as I as I've been in this job longer, I you just can't. Underestimate the the value of both of those things being integral to actually moving something forward.
0: Thanks, John, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with John Schlifsky. He is the chairman and chief executive officer of Fortune 100 company, Northwestern Mutual. If you enjoy this conversation, well, check out any of our previous 400. Interviews, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Marufal is my audio engineer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.